We're in the parable of the, uh, the two lost sons, most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son, but uh, I think much, much better the two lost sons because it misses the whole point by just talking about the one. I think in doing that, when we think about, we, we've heard this called the prodigal son for so long, our emphasis, when you hear the title of something, you can automatically get directed to the one that was sort of off and running and doing his thing versus the other one that was home. Everything looks good on the surface. Everything looks as it should be. Right? In any family, you can have... You know, we're all black sheep in the family. Let's face it, right? You know, the old, the black sheep of the family. And that's the one that's usually getting in the most visible trouble, right? That's the one that's always uh, getting in the car accidents or getting arrested or doing, you know, doing this or doing that. But at the end of the day, we're all the black sheep of the family. We really are. It's just that some have something that is a little bit more obvious and the physical, temporal consequences seem a little bit more severe. But every one of us is uh, a black sheep when we think about what it is that God intended for human beings to be and how far away we've gotten from what God intended human beings to be. And we're in the process of having the image of Christ conformed in us. And, and so we're coming to the... We're in the process this morning, you and I, of coming into the fullness of our humanity. The reason why we're created. I, I think it helps to think big picture like that. We're in the process of being restored to fullness of humanity. We're not fully human, in a sense, that way. Um, and I think that's a good point to remember, too, when they talk about the unborn. That's a great opportunity. When they say it's not fully human, it's a great opportunity for a Christian witness to say none of us are fully human yet. We're in the process of becoming fully human. And we'll never be fully human except we're conformed to Christ. In that case, and in that event, we'll be able to say we're fully human. So... But that little bit of religious, I mean, Christian philosophy this morning, uh, religion and, and its community of religion that we're in. Let's take a look. Dive in here. We're, we're, we're at that point in our story where we've seen this young man basically wish that his father were dead in a sense. That's where his heart was. He probably never would have said that. Probably never would have said, gee, Dad, I wish you were dead. But when he asked his father for his inheritance before his father died... And then when he went off and spent it, that was even worse. Okay, um, and we saw that not only did that cause would that cause a tremendous rift in the family, but also that would cause a tremendous rift in the community, uh, particularly for a young Jewish boy to go out there and lose his money or the family money to a Gentile was the ultimate in humiliation on the family, and that boy would not be welcomed back to the community at all. And we talked about the ceremony that they had, right? We talked about if that boy came back into the community, he would be met by the community. Because I can tell you right now, when the father ran out to meet the boy, he wasn't the only one running out there. He might have been the only one that had to lift up his robe because he was going into a full sprint. But there were members of the community that were following him out to see what was going to go on. To see if he was going to give the boy what for. Or at least to make sure this boy, before he comes back into the community... They performed the ceremony that we talked about, this Ketsatsa ceremony, where they would take a clay earthenware jar full of burned corn and burned nuts and smash it at his feet and just haul out his name. And that was the ceremony that was intended to say that you are disgraced and you are exiled from our community and never again welcome. So the father's running out to meet him was to stop that from happening. The father ran out to meet him, to stop him, to save him that embarrassment. Now at this point, the father knows nothing about where the son's heart is whether he's repentant, whether he's just coming back because he's just had it out there and his life and his wellness are spent. He has no idea, the father. All he knows 
is the great love that he has. And he's going to run out there and he's going to do what he can to prevent his son from having to go through that shameful exile from the community and have the entire community look down from it. And the father is the only one that can do that. There's no one else who can go out there and cause this reconciliation to happen if it's going to happen. And we saw that even though back in 17 it says when he was out there and he was eating the, eating the food that the pigs were eating and he was thinking to himself and it says he came to himself. We talked about how and we exhausted ourselves on this a little bit that this is not repentance. Just the fact that he came to himself. Basically, all he did was say, man, I'm hungry. What am I going to do here? What am I thinking? I can go back home and get food. I can go, I, something I can do back there. At least I got a good shot. It had nothing to do with repentance at this point. Uh, all he said was, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? That, that's, not, that's not the heart of a repentant person right there. At all. And so, uh, he says, I'll, I'll rise and go to my father. 15, everybody, by the way. Oh yeah, we're in Luke chapter 15. Parable, parable of the prodigal son or the two lost sons. Uh, and in verse 18, he says, I'll rise, go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And when he gets there and the father sees him coming, we see the father go and lavish and, and embrace him. He humiliates himself, first of all, by running out to meet his son. That should have been what the mother would do in that culture. And he picks up his robe and runs and he exposes his, you know, his, his legs, his ankles, because he has to do that, which would have been even further humiliating. And so, <clears throat> he takes all the humiliation upon himself. I mean, at that point when he's running out there and the community is watching, I bet you when they see the father running, they immediately think, as they stop thinking about the son for a minute, that's just sort of coming back. What they're looking at is, look at him running out there. I'm like, he's exposing his... Look at him. He's lifting up his robe and running. So all of the focus would have been shifted. All the humiliation would have been shifted to the Father. And I think that's a very important point in this parable. Is the humiliation and the shame that Christ suffered in our behalf. And coming and taking upon himself as Philippian 2 fully describes him. Right? He came and he bore all that. He took all of that upon himself and sort of deflected from from the gaze of others. So, that's kind of where we left. We talked a little bit about, uh, we saw God's heart in the Old Testament so that we could try to come to some understanding as to how is it that the Pharisees, except for the fact that they weren't, they didn't have God's priorities, they didn't have God's heart, how is it that they would miss the whole reason that Jesus would eat with sinners? Because remember what started all the three little parables we talked about. and We talked about the the lost only briefly about we didn't go into any sort of real teaching in depth on the lost coin and the lost sheep which preceded this parable because we didn't need to because the point of it is just basically the lost uh, the rejoicing that happens when something lost is found okay so there was no need to go into that other than to say the three parables go together and we have to, if we're going to understand this third parable we have to understand the other two in light of Jesus comment when the Pharisees said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay? Uh, they're just disgusted with Jesus. And so, we talked about, gee, according to the Old Testament, we ought to expect the loving heart of God. Why wouldn't the Pharisees anticipate God's great love? Right? Because, and, and maybe some of our own theology is, is bad if, we, if we're not well trained in the Scripture. And certainly, unbelievers that tend to think that the God of the Old Testament is so different than the God of the New Testament. Uh, 
and it's hardly a worthy discussion to have amongst the brethren, and it's a difficult discussion to have with unbelievers, because sometimes we bring our entire understanding of things that we have as Christians to people that know nothing and expect them to be able to relate to something, no matter how profound we make it sound. Right? We can say something profound. We could, you know, we could say to the unbeliever, "What are you talking about? You, you, you talk about." I suppose we could take the time to work through them, but say, "Look." You think God is a God of wrath, but when Jesus comes back, He's going to look at look at Revelation. Look what He's going to do. He's going to be a He's going to be pestilence. People are going to call out for the rocks to fall on them and everything. And there's a place to have that discussion, perhaps at some point. But I think sometimes we expect unbelievers too quickly to be able to relate and think that, oh wow, you know, I just gave them the silver bullet or the you know the wooden stake through the unbelieving heart. It doesn't really happen that way, or very rarely. Um, so that's where we were. And we saw that this young man, after the father went out and embraced him and hugged him, the one thing he said this time that he didn't say the, when he was rehearsing his little speech was, treat me as one of your hired servants. He doesn't say that at all. He just says, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. And that, was his, and that leaving off that last part was not insignificant because that was just part of his whole plan to sort of maybe, I don't know, get back the money to pay his father back or somehow that the culture and the community would see that he really means or whatever. He, he, he didn't even say that. His response was after the father. Remember, he didn't come back and say all these things that he was rehearsing and then the father embraced him. No, the father embraced him and just smothered him in, in, in kisses and, 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 and love and, and uh, fatherly affection embracing him. And that's when the son said, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And, I'm sorry? I may be reading this wrong, but it looks like in verse 17 and 18, or 18, when he says, I will arise and go to my father, mm-hmm. uh, isn't this before he meets his father? And then when he meets his father, doesn't he repeat the same words? No, he doesn't. He leaves out the last part. When his father embraces him, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer to be called your son. He never gets to say, treat me as one of your hired servants, because that's what he says when he was rehearsing it. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And I don't think it's insignificant that that's left off at all. I guess my attention was to be drawn to the fact that he did say he had sinned against heaven. Yes, and we talked about that as well, didn't we? We talked about the fact that the Pharisees may very likely themselves recognize that Moses himself, uh, sorry, Pharaoh himself, said the very same thing, and not only once, where Moses came to him after the plague had happened. After terrible, after the eighth plague, Pharaoh says to Moses, I've sinned against, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against heaven. All right, go, uh, pray for me and intercede, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, that's way back in Exodus chapter 10. So, we certainly have good biblical standing to know that that's not any kind of genuine repentance, that that's just sort of a, a heart of, I'm in a jam, how do I get out? It's a big difference. Huge difference, Wally. Yeah, in verse, I'm looking at verse 22, mm-hmm. and it says, as he's, as he's talking to his father, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you think perhaps, rather than not including it, he was just cut off by his father? And but the father said to the slaves, you know, so he ran to him. He's all excited. He says, quickly bring out the best robes and put it on him. And Mm -hmm. and there's a crowd there, and and and, uh, his slaves are there with him. Many of his slaves are there with him, and. He just cuts his son right off. He never gets a chance to say it. No, I think that's assuming something in the text is not there. I think that would be an imposition on the text. I just don't think that's in there. I think if that was the case, he could have said it when the, when the son first said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Why wouldn't the father just cut in then? You know what I mean? So I think, I think that misses the point of... 
I think that misses the whole point of the, the impact of the father's love on the son. I think the main point is that the son, he changes perspective totally as a response to the father's love, which is exactly is the point Jesus is making when he says that, uh, when he goes on to make this parable and to tell this parable, because the, the Pharisees were making a big point about this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, uh, and I, I gotta be honest with you, I had the same thought when I was reading it, um, but there's nothing to indicate that. It's just kind of an assumption that we can make and ask the question of, but I don't think there's anything else in the story that would sort of support that, and I don't think there's really any need to bring that to it. You know what I mean? I just think that this is what was intended. Yes? I think along the lines that you just discussed, I think that it's possible that when the son realized that he was being welcomed mm-hmm. with such, uh, imp- uh, uh, such a, a welcoming actions by his yeah. father, he... Thought, yeah, I don't really need to say I, need, I just want to be one of your servants. Yeah, and I think that would be an assumption as well. If we were to think that, you know, if the kid would think, hey, I've got this maid. I don't, now I can back off the hired servant thing, man. I don't even have to do the hired. My father's so happy to see me. I don't have to worry about doing the hired servant thing. I'm good to go here. I think either one of those would be in, in, would be imposing on the text something that God didn't put there. You, you have indi- indicated uh, in this uh, an understanding that. Um, the father was looking to protect his son mm-hmm. from this particular, right. uh, what mm-hmm. did you call it? It's a ceremony that they had called the Kitsatsa ceremony. Okay. Um, no disrespect, man, but where did you come across this information? This is a well-known, from the culture of the day, it particularly shows up in the Talmud, the ceremony itself, and in some of the writings of that time. So it's one of those, it's one of those examples where if you don't understand the background of what's going on in the scripture, you can make wrong inferences. We talked about this a little bit. We think we can come to a text that's 2,000 years old and bring today to it and try to interpret the text by our common experience. And that's where Christianity will fall off and will lose people. So this is a commonly understood sort of... You won't just read this in sort of what... The first person I read this in was a a gentleman that was lived in the Middle East for 50 years and became very familiar with the ancient customs. He became familiar with like certain 4th century texts that were written in the Aramaic languages, people, the Syriac version and some of the Coptic versions and things like that and why are they different and that kind of thing and then studying and finding out about the culture. And that's why you can buy Bibles. I think there's one out now that is completely immersed in the culture of the day so that you can find out what's going on in the background. Because if you don't understand what's going on in the background, we're just going to bring our idiotic Western Everyone ought to see things the way I see them, point of view. I'm, just, I'm not arguing with you, but I'm looking at this. That's good, because I'd probably win. <laughs> you, you, you probably would. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Okay, the, 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 the point that I find here is, it says that in verse 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, mm-hmm. his father saw him mm-hmm. and felt compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... I didn't see anything else there mm-hmm. but the fact that he felt compassion mm-hmm. and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Mm-hmm. I can understand a, I mean, that may have played into it and mm-hmm. I would agree with you that mm-hmm. it probably did, mm-hmm. but it doesn't say it. And yeah, you do, you know, we have to understand the culture at the time, mm-hmm. but to the average reader, we're not going to see that culture. We're not going to, unless we're diving into That's right. the depths of it. And unless you're willing to do that, you won't understand the scripture. So, so what I would take out of this right. is that the father saw him, mm-hmm. loved him, and ran to right. him mm-hmm. with a forgiving and a loving heart. Mm-hmm. And you would and see that would, would see. right. That'd be a wrong ceremony. 
that'd be wrong to assume that because you have to understand when you're interpreting that's not an assumption. It's what it says here. Yeah, it is what it says here. But you're still making an assumption based on what you don't know. In other words, Jesus did not write this to Wally. The Holy Spirit did not write this to Wally. This was not inspired, written to Wally. This was written to the. This was written by Luke, two thousand years ago, and he didn't write it to you. He wrote it to the people of that time, and recorded to the people of that time. Yeah. So it was just like. If there are things that we could read, there's probably a lot of things that you've read about in Scripture now that you have some understanding as to the Old Testament, okay? I mean, so it'd be like a non-Christian approaching the Scripture now that has no experience with it and looks at God crucifying the Son. And they read, they read just Romans. It says that in the Father's predetermined counsel, it was God that put His own Son to death on the cross. And people would say, well, that's a brutal, that's a brutal God who could do such a thing. But unless they were fully immersed in the understanding of the Passover and what that meant in its initial setting, then it's going to have a lot less value and a lot less meaning to them. If they don't see what's going on in the culture and how Jesus Christ represents all the things of sacrifice in a certain way, they went on for years and years and years that came before this. I mean, if somebody were to read the book of Hebrews and not have some understanding of the Old Covenant and what it meant in the Old Testament, then they could say, well, look, I'm just reading what's in the text here. I, I, I can't fully immerse myself in 2000. Well, you have to fully immerse yourself in 2000 years ago. That's what I'm here for. That's what other people that study, or that's what you know, commentaries are for. Because unless you understand the culture that it's set in, you'll make assumptions about the text that may not be accurate. So, yes, the Father is compassionate, and you see that, and any one of us can relate to that. And that's part of the point of the whole story. Is the Father here represents Jesus in the story? This is Jesus in the story, okay? Not necessarily God the Father, although you know we don't have to get into the minutia of that. But Jesus is the one who was accused of sitting down and eating with sinners, and so he goes on to give this parable really about himself. And so, yes, of course, he's a fully compassionate. But unless you understand the details of the culture they're in, you're not going to get the fullness of that compassion. What you're going to end up with is a compassionate father who is just responding to the son coming back and loving him as opposed to a father that goes out and loves him before he even knows. It'd be like, say you came home and you found Jimmy doing whatever, the worst thing you can imagine, Jimmy's doing in your house. And he would only do this if he knew for sure that either you were dead or you were never coming back. And the only reason why he's doing this and so his doing that says, this is, this is what I think about my father. This is what I think about my father. Now you love Jimmy. And let's say you guys had a massive falling out. Well, it's, it's, it's a year later. And you see Jimmy coming. You're probably not just going to sit there and wait and say, all right, let's see where he's at. All right? No, you, you, you've longed to know him. You've longed to, to have a relationship with him. You've longed for things to be the right way. Even if you've got some resentment and some bitterness, you're going to run to meet him first. And he, on the other hand, might be thinking, look at what I've done with my life. I've made a mess of myself. i got this person doing that. I've got that person doing this. I've, I wrecked the car. Look what I did to the house. I've, you know, whatever. And he's going to be a little bit nervous. And he sees you coming. You throw your arms around him. And you, you, it's going to make a profound difference in his life right then and there. I want to share something with you that I got out of... Um, I read this yesterday on Fox News. And I thought, this is somewhat a very contemporary example of what we're seeing going on here. And I hope you understand too, I'm not being confrontational with you about this. I want you to understand as much as you can understand, as much as I can understand, and I'll get to your question. We have to understand the culture and we have to understand just how humiliating it is for the Father to do this because we have the Pharisees saying, this man eats, sits with sinners and eats with them. We have to understand the kind of God that does that. 
And we can understand it by thinking about, I can see with this, you know, anyone that reads this can see that there's a real problem with the son here and what he did. But unless in the culture of the time we understand it, not only would the father not run out to meet him, the mother would do that. If we didn't understand the cultural ceremony of the day that he'd be cut off from the, from the uh, community for the rest of all his days and the whole family would live in, unless we understand those things, we're not going to fully grasp the love as much as we could. Just like if someone sort of heard about Jimmy got in some trouble and was gone for a while, but he didn't know the, they don't know the details of yours and Jimmy's life. If we could get into yours and Jimmy's life and look at the photo album from the past 20 years, look at videos of you guys and know what you did together in Jamaica, all that stuff, it would be that much more meaningful to us, right? Todd. The only thing I was going to just add to that is, is that what, what happens is, is that it, it, that's kind of tailing along with the argument that uh, so-called higher criticism and the liberal argument about mm. uh, adapting what is the past into mm -hmm. the present right. cultural mores right. yep. and trying to reinterpret it from that yes. position yes. and treating it as a quote-unquote living document that has to adapt to the age rather sure. than understanding the age of the past mm -hmm. and the context mm -hmm. and the wording mm -hmm. and the language and the culture sure. saying this is the foundation to which we study this. Well, sure. We have so much going on when we talk. We don't even understand how much we have going on in our minds when we have a conversation because we're so we know the culture we're in, right? We fully know it. I, I'll get to you a second. Just a second, Will. Thank you. I do see your hand. Um, that uh, unless I mean, it's, imagine taking a kid from the inner city, generations of inner city life, and you sit down and you read to him the twenty-third psalm. And you start talking to him about shepherding. What a good shepherd Jesus is. He's going to look at you like you got ten heads. What are you talking about? You know, somehow, there's going to be a way to take the meaning and the understanding of that. And you'd have to work through communicating to that young man or that young woman the culture that this whole shepherding motif is taught in. And what that means. And what, it, what, what does it mean? It says, he anoints my head with oil, Right? He's not going to know that a shepherd would take oil and put it all over the sheep's head to prevent the flies from getting at it and annoying him 24-7. He's not going to know that. He's not going to know that a sheep gets real nervous going by rushing water. They're not going to want to stop and drink from the water, so they're not going to be able to get refreshed. But the good shepherd makes the sheep lie down by you know still waters, right, and in green pastures. Green pastures, the kids maybe seen a patch of lawn about this big, and his dog pooped on it yesterday, you know what I mean? So he's not... I mean, they have no... Right? So we, we want to... How do you get a kid from the inner city to understand 2,500 years ago, 2,800 years ago, what it means to be a shepherd? Will? Well, you know, um, it's just in a sense with the way I work. So I have all these younger kids working with me. Mm. And I work with a very diverse group. And there's a lot of uh, Indians, the Middle Eastern, mm -hmm. they're eating certain things and they're having certain diets. They're having them clean utensils, anything touch pork like all these yep. religious things. Mm -hmm. And none of these kids understand it and clean and they're great. But I respect them because I know a lot of their old heritage ways is all these things. Sure, and that you have to respect the culture people come out of. You can't say adapt to my culture first and then I'll sort of teach you but they can bring the best of their culture into it. You might get additional understanding through their culture even in some ways. Tony. I was thinking of the verse where Jesus describes himself and he says, I am but a worm. Mm. And there's something behind that that if you haven't looked at it and figured out what exactly did that mean in the culture, what did they use a worm for? Mm. 
yeah. things like that, you're not going to fully understand yeah. what he's saying. Yeah. And so, I, I think, Wally, you probably, you know so much about, at this point in your Christian walk, so much about biblical culture, you could understand things that you know, a, a new believer or someone coming to the text for the first time wouldn't. But this, and very frankly, until I studied some of this stuff and understood exactly what was going on in the community, or as much as I can, now it's more meaningful to me. Now it's even richer. Yep. My final comment to you is this: that number one, I appreciate what you what you're presenting to us, mm. and I understand it, and mm. I agree with it. Mm. Uh, I just didn't see it. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Sure. The second thing is. When I was in Jamaica, mm-hmm. uh, there is a total cultural difference. Sure. Uh, we have certain expectations here of how we must behave and mm-hmm. how we have to do this and that. And in Jamaica, if we in, uh, inflict our cultural mm-hmm. uh, mores mm-hmm. on them, uh, they will rebel. Sure. And I know a particular pastor Mm -hmm. who has done that Mm -hmm. and has caused problems for himself in the community because he didn't understand the culture. Sure. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a form of there is a form of healthy. I hate to even use the word because it's been so used the wrong way. Multiculturalism, in a sense, right? I mean, the Bible wasn't written to Western 21st century Americans. Yeah. Right. So and 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 when I tease you about, I would win. I hope you know that's just. You know, some people like I race. I run. When I run, I don't race. I don't. I don't compete against if people. You race, you would definitely. Win. And I thought to myself one day, I said, "Man, I'm not very." I talk. I see all these people that run and they race, and they're all competitive. They don't want to win. I don't care if I win or not. And so I was thinking, well, I wonder why I'm not competitive. And I thought, Pat, you're completely competitive in another area. You know what I mean? You love to win an argument, so you know I have to take that to heart. What's that? Yeah, me, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've got to be careful in our apologetic and in our teaching not to be spiritual Mayweathers. Some people here might feel like, well, then I guess I can't read my Bible because I'm in the 21st century. Right. But this is where uh, Bible, uh, study Bible is Thank you. helpful. Yes. So if you don't have a study Bible, I, you're going to be in the dark. I Thank you. Say that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the reality is that we have 2,000 years beyond the writing of the Bible. So if you want to get updated on the past, sure. you need to get a modern. You know, it's kind of like the Constitution, okay? Go ahead, Barbara. I was going to say, I think more importantly, it's the reason why God gave teachers to the church. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because it's hard. Yeah. Is Barbara mm-hmm. implying that I'm just gift to me? To yeah. Barbara Wolfenden? You are. Yes, Tony. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I I've tried to look up and find out things. How did people you know, the sanitation that we take for granted? How did people deal with that in the old days? You know, thousands of years ago. You know, the little things that were part of their life that aren't part of ours. And so it's very important that we understand as much as we can those things. Because, and even as much as I can understand them, I don't know what it's like to face that kind of humiliation that this father was facing. There's not a whole lot. But I think the young woman in this story has a little bit... I think this is going to be very helpful to us. This is... I was so happy when I read this yesterday. I said, boy, this really fits in nicely. So there's this young lady. Her name is Angel... Holster Hatfield. All right, this was published yesterday in Fox News. The title of it is, I was, an unwed, I was an unwed teen and had to tell my pastor father. What happened next was an incredible shock. That's the title of it. 
I was an unwed teen and had to tell my pastor father. First of all, what do you think she's talking about? That's the print, right? What happened next was incredible. So, uh, and the reason why I think, one of the reasons why she was moved to write this was earlier in the year, apparently, there was this young lady named Maddie Runkles who was in the news because the private Christian high school she went to did not let her walk the aisle or attend the ceremony of graduation because she was pregnant. And they wanted to, quote, teach a lesson regarding her immorality. Okay? So they did not let her. All right? And so she says, while I understood the school's desire to teach their students lessons about the consequences of sin, I also think the events in her life could have provided students with a lesson about grace. The grace that caused Jesus to tell a woman living in sin, neither do I contend you go and sin no more. Um, so she says she, she finally got the strength to come to her father and tell her tell him that she was pregnant. Now remember her father's a pastor. All right? So you can already begin to see the level of shock that would take place in the community. This is why I say this is kind of close. If a pastor's daughter was not even out of her teen years yet, okay, I mean, much less, just because we think this way, okay, this is not that we should think this way. We shouldn't be any more shocked if Gary and Michelle's daughter was 18 or 19 and came in to, had to tell us she was pregnant. We shouldn't be any more sort of shocked than you would be if we found out anybody else's daughter was, right? But we have this sense of, well, gee, they're their pastor, the child, she, and that just goes to show we don't understand grace to begin with. We've missed an awful lot when we think that way. Um, so we need to sort of uh, scour ourselves of that. So she told him, she says, my father's shoulders sagged and he hung his head. Momentarily we sat in silence, me holding my breath, awaiting his reaction while wearing the weight of his certain disappointment and possible anger. Then there was this indescribable and overwhelming feeling of shame that washed over me in waves. My father finally raised his head and looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, Honey, I am so disappointed. I am. My father finally raised his head and looked at me with tears in his eyes. Honey, he said, I am so disappointed. I am. It won't be easy and there will be struggles and a hard path ahead of you, but I love you. And now I figure I have been given more to love. She said, wait, what? My mouth was agape. Before I could respond, my father got up from his chair and reached over and wrapped me in his arms and simply held me. And she says, that grace moment propelled my life in a new direction. That's what we see happening in here with the father running out, I think, to the son. When I read this, I said, this is what's happening in the text. That grace moment propelled my life in a new direction. No longer was it his plan to just go back and see, okay, what can I do to get back in my father's good graces? I know what I can do, Right? She says, I confessed my sins, I cleaned up my act, and I charted a new course fanned by the winds of grace and truth spoken in my love. She says, here's one of my mottos, which that I have shared weekly with the incarcerated moms. A leopard cannot change its spots, but I assure you that a caterpillar can turn into a butterfly. I like those little corny things. They help. Um, so, And then she just closes by saying, Publicly shaming that other girl and not allowing her to walk in her graduation ceremonies will not change anyone else for the better. Just as having allowed her to participate in the graduation would not likely have compelled young girls to get pregnant. What a powerful point. There's nothing about letting her attend the ceremony, all right, that would change anyone else, by not letting her change anyone else. They didn't change anybody in that point. They didn't change a single person. And, and allowing her to participate would not have very likely said, hey, she gets to get pregnant and come to the ceremony. I'm going to get pregnant too, right? She says, shame didn't teach me. Grace did. 
and I didn't learn grace by hearing about it, but by being the recipient of it. Right? What a terrific... This is gold. I'm going to hold on to this for a long time because it fits so nicely. Do you think the Father in this story and also the Father in the parable that we're reading um, may not have even come to mind the amount of embarrassment and shame that would actually be put on them and in the split second of, of the, the decision on what to do the grace was so powerful mm-hmm. that the shame would definitely come to his mind mm-hmm. um, but yet it was so minimal compared to the love he had in the yeah possibly possibly although I, I like to think that I like to think that in some ways he would be fully aware of it because that would make the doing of it that much more significant. I, I can see it either way. You know, I could play that either way. Um, April. Yeah. Man. Yep. Good 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 verse. Tony uh, Tony, I'm sorry, Todd. Um two things. Um I think that uh the thing that is a necessary ingredient to the compassion of the Father uh and uh, what should have been a more compassionate school mm-hmm. is the desire of the independent uh, repentance mm-hmm. of the individual. Mm-hmm. If that girl said to the principal of that school before graduation, said, still love my boyfriend, I think it's okay, mm. I'm not really sorrowful for what I did. Right. Mm-hmm. Huge different paradigm shift. Yeah. Yep. Se- secondly, I think too that <clears throat> that teenager's crisis, here we have a famine as a crisis. Mm-hmm. And the sovereignty of God and His providence mm-hmm. many times brings about providentially the crisis to bring about mm-hmm. the change of heart and the whole course of events that follow after that yep. to new life. Mm-hmm. Whether it's spiritual renewal uh, in salvation or also in mm-hmm. sanctification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember... Um, I, I can remember... You know, well, there's, there's probably incidents in all our lives who we can call when we became... Um, hyper aware of God's grace in our life and God's grace is intended to I mean if and I, you know without getting into the whys and the why nots but why does God's grace you know why is it given to some to a certain degree and not to others I, I, I almost don't even like to ask the question because to me that just deflects from God's grace the why of it you know what I mean it's like once we ask why it sort of to me deprives the richness of grace, you know what I mean? Because it's, it's, it's an unfigureoutable thing. It, it, it can't be properly defined. And that's why it's so hard for people to accept grace and to receive grace and to know grace. It is so contrary to us. Yes. I think a lot of it, though, does have much to do with our heartfelt relationship with Christ. And therefore, not that it's an, a, a payback, because mm-hmm. I don't agree with that, mm-hmm. but I just think that God's love for his children who are faithful to him mm-hmm. he is always faithful to us mm-hmm. and we see his grace we mm-hmm. understand his grace mm-hmm. I think that grace is probably always there but we experience it mm-hmm. we're willing to accept it we're mm-hmm. willing to understand it and I think that's a big part of God's grace yeah and by his grace we're willing you know it's, it's as scripture says the goodness of God leads us to repentance God is always first God is always first. It, it is grace and it is love that transforms us in that way. I mean, love, the love of God makes up uh, what, what's lacking in it. it what makes up, it transforms us. Yes? So your main point then overall in this parable is a long 
and the lasting misconception that many have had mm -hmm. with the emphasis being on the son's return mm -hmm. with him being the repentant one yes. and so on mm -hmm. rather the emphasis should be on the father's mercy Absolutely. and forgiveness yes. who goes out and reaches out to him yes yes mm -hmm. and, 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 and for reasons that we'll continue to see as we go through uh, verses 22 to 24 uh, he says the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe put it on him put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet um, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Okay? For this my son was dead, is alive again. He was lost, is found, then began to celebrate. This was a signet ring. Okay? This ring here, the word for this ring is a signet ring. That's a ring that the father would use that was, gave him authority to sign documents with. Okay? That's the kind of ring it was. Alright? So that says something there too. You know? And, and the question is, what is being celebrated here? Who's being celebrated here? Um, note again that well we go back to Jesus' words in verse 10 right where he says <clears throat> just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents mm -hmm. seems like a very unusual thing to say when you talk about a sheep that was lost and then a coin that was lost why would it not be unusual it wouldn't be unusual because it's reality, it's right. fact. That's the rejoicing. And, and, and when, when they're the, the celebrating the loving return mm -hmm. of, of the Father to the Son, and it's, 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 it's both. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of that, they're celebrating God's grace. Mm -hmm. Amen. The celebration is it's just this rejoicing celebration here. They're, being, they're really rejoicing. We'll pick this up a little bit more too. They're rejoicing they're really rejoicing mostly for the Father. They're rejoicing more for the Father than they are for the Son. I mean, let's face it, even if you saw a reconciliation, I think you'd be willing to embrace the Son, but our human nature is such that, I mean, we'd just be happy for the, for the Father, although we'd certainly be glad the Son would be coming back. I want to take a look, at least get started, maybe we'll get to it all this week, is um, now, now we come to the other lost Son. Okay? His oldest son was in the field. He heard, he heard the rejoicing and the music and the dancing. And so, uh, he's, he's, the kid says to him, Look, your, your brother's come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. <clears throat> and uh, he says, But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. This is another one of those things that we need to be able to appreciate from a cultural perspective. This was every bit as humiliating, if not more, than what the first son did to refuse the father's entreaty to come to him, okay? To make the father come out. And for the father to go out would be, again, another self-deprecating thing. It would be like, hey, the little jerk doesn't want to come in. You know, I'm not going to go out to him. You see how it, it's, it's so easy to make the other persons make the first move. Isn't one of our great struggles... And I know that we have to... I, I know that there's... I don't want to confuse any with this. This is not a parable, by the way, about repentance. This is a parable about the grace of God, which will lead to repentance. This is not a parable about repentance. So, I thought about maybe going into a little bit more this week or talking about how does forgiveness work? Does a person repent first? Blah, blah, blah. Because we had that discussion a little last week. But I said, no, this is not a parable about repentance. Okay? It, it, it's a parable that can tell us you know, what's the spark that ignites a repentant fire in a person, right? Is, is the grace of God. But... So I decided not to go in that direction. Um, but, but again, we see here the Father's self-deprecation that, okay, I'll go out and I'll be the one. Even though 
even though this kid's being really quite the little jerk, it's the love that the Father has. This is what's going to transform. And this is why I say, even in our preaching and our teaching, and this is where I, this is where I, I come to sort of somewhat the limit of my understanding and the, and the depth of it, because you can see and read sinners in the hands of an angry God and read about how people reacted to that. Okay, and certainly God teaches that. And I begin to think to myself, if the love of God is not sufficient to convert a soul, then the wrath of God would never do it. Nothing is going to convert a soul like being the recipient of grace and love. Okay, so I think that, and I don't know what flowed from that. I mean, obviously people can be seriously convicted by that powerful. and We have to have that. I've seen it in, in work. I, I saw it at Camp Impact when a young man preached on the wrath of God. And half the camp was broken. Man, people were wailing and gnashing of teeth all night long after that, you know. How many of them came to genuine repent? I don't know. But they heard a lot about the love of God that week too. Yeah. I'm just thinking also of the motive mm. of the uh, prodigal son mm. coming back. It wasn't a heartfelt sorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't an overwhelming love for the father. Right. It was a selfish motivation mm-hmm. that he wasn't eating, he was hungry, yep. and he didn't want to live like this. Yeah. He wanted to go back and get what he had. Yeah. So, you can't say it was repentance. Right. What you have to say is it was God's grace. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, God. when you say it that way, Pat, um, if the love of God can't save man, if the wrath of God can't save man, mm-hmm. then the love of God can't save mm-hmm. man. Um, and and I, I know where you're coming from mm-hmm. on that, but it, it really isn't a matter of choice in terms of from the scriptures and how we try to balance out our presentation of the gospel to the mm-hmm. world. It's a matter of each circumstance and being led by the Spirit and reading those circumstances mm-hmm. and the type of person you're in front of or a group of people mm-hmm. you're in front of to present the gospel in a certain manner. Mm-hmm. For Jonathan Edwards, it was a moment of time within a moment of history mm-hmm. with a great mind that says, this is the time in Enfield, right. Connecticut to preach yeah. the wrath of God. Yeah. I would never fault him for that. Right. Uh, I, I heard just recently about um, Joseph Prince who's going to make a church in a Philippines, and he said, we're, we're now under grace. We don't have to. And I'm saying, well, are you implying then that uh, Jonathan Edwards was wrong in uh-huh. doing it that way? And, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm just not going to disagree with great minds like that or right. 20 times better than me. Sure. Um, yeah. So the, it's, I don't think it's a matter of choice. Mm-hmm. I, I, think it's, I think it's a matter of being balanced in our approach, understanding both hmm. subject matters to present to the world. Well, we know that God set forth Christ as a propitiation, right? Uh, and he, he set him forth as an atonement cover. He set him forth as a mercy seat. I mean, when we preach the gospel, we're preaching about Christ crucified. That's the wrath of God, man. I mean, that's the wrath of God. That wrath there is, I mean, like I said, God bankrupted himself of his wrath towards, you know, those that would sort of be his. Those that would be redeemed to himself by the cross of Christ. God completely bankrupted his wrath. There's nothing left in the in the in, in, in God no longer has he closed the account that says wrath that, that you had an interest in. He, there's nothing left for you in wrath. God has no wrath for for the believer. He will never have wrath for the believer ever again. Never. He completely bankrupted it there on the cross. He spent it all. Um, for the unbeliever, you know, the unbeliever's account is still full. Not a nickel of that, not a penny of that, not a not a widow's might of that was expended on the cross. Well, maybe it is because God doesn't take them out. At any moment that God doesn't take out the unbeliever is a moment of some benefit of the cross. So, um, anyway, that's a good healthy distraction and a good point because, you know, I, like I said, I, I, I work through that in my head, but 
Because, yes, he could, even in his best articulation of the wrath of God, that's probably about as best as we can come to understanding what's happening on the cross. Now, we could say the same about grace, because mm-hmm. at the cross we see the intersection of grace and wrath big time. Like you won't see it anywhere else. But how do you describe what you see there on the cross when a sinless God-man is crucified? Well, Jonathan Edwards came pretty close to describing what that kind of wrath is. Mm. So yeah, we, we can't get a full enough understanding of the wrath of God. Yes, sir. Um, I was just thinking the value of preaching wrath comes because our culture won't understand the love of God until they understand the wrath of God. Mm. Um, and in our culture, just saying love—that's a good point too. Ton of baggage. That, that's a great point. A, a, a yep. total lack of yep. depth. Great point. And, and real, yep. real love to it. So yep. when we preach our just deserved wrath, yep. only then does the love yep. become as yep. alive as it is. And really, aren't, aren't, aren't what we're seeing here? Isn't what we're seeing here? a preemption of the wrath of the community. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and the whole thing that I was talking to Wally and everyone about, about trying to understand the culture is getting an understanding for the kind of wrath that the community has, which makes the love of the Father that much more amazing. So, mm-hmm. they are, I hate to say two sides of the same coin, but, but they, you really need one in place to understand the fullness of the other. Love helps us fully understand wrath. Wrath helps us. But what a great point that our, the, the term love comes with so much baggage. It really does. And it does take spirit-anointed, powerful, penetrating preaching like that to... And that's why Paul came with power, he says. Power. The Holy Spirit's power to convince a person that thinks they've done nothing wrong. To take a person that says, I don't think I'm an unbeliever, who says that all the time, or I don't do anything wrong, or this is good for you, and you know... uh, All all kinds of religious pluralism and moral... uh, 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 all kinds of tones to have the whole culture saying this to you at the same time and then to have the Holy Spirit just go right through that and remove all of it at once. It's like I was talking about when Jesus, uh, when, the, when, when uh, Peter and John healed, they healed the man that had, hadn't walked since birth and he got up and jumped up and down and rejoiced. He's never walked before. All the supporting muscle structures, the tendons, the back muscles, the neck muscles, the, the thighs, the everything, all of a sudden is working fully? That's what God does, right? When He, when he cuts through all that societal you know, garbage and you know, all the stuff so many people are, are, are in. And it's the love of God that does that. It, without Preaching is the love of God. Wrathful preaching is the love of God too because God says, man, I've got to use this hammer to crush. You know? Oh... He did me and you. You know, and very frankly, we didn't need, we know about the wrath of God. Many of us. Uh, I knew about the wrath of God. I, I may not have been able to articulate it as the wrath of God, but my feelings of separation, my feelings of loneliness, my feelings of shame before God and other people, my being cut off from my family, for all that stuff, it's the wrath of God. Oh, thank God for the wrath of God. Thank God for the grace of God. Amen. So all this is, is good, good, good. Um, so we got this son. Now we still talk about son. This son is angry. What's he so angry about? What is he so angry about? Yeah, yeah, he's jealous. He's very jealous. Um, and what else? The inheritance money's all gone, wasted. Well, that could be. Yeah, maybe he's thinking a little bit selfishly. He's like, hey, man, 
I could have gotten a little more interest off that action before you spoil it, because he's the oldest son. He'd get a bigger piece of the inheritance, though. Culturally, the oldest son gets the biggest piece. It's not like a 50-50 split. The oldest son gets the, the firstborn, gets the biggest piece of the inheritance. Is there a hand? Yes. Um, he remained loyal. Mm-hmm. Dad yes. Worked with him every day. Mm-hmm. And this guy's mm-hmm. brother was off, yes. you know, philandering. Yes. Yes. And he gets welcomed. Yep. This is a very important point, right? That, that the son was loyal to the father. And I think we need to think of the context of sort of what that loyalty is. Uh, he reveals a lot more about himself and the way that he talks to the father and the things that he says. Uh, he says here in verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What's he saying there? Yeah, he was loyal, but in, in what kind of... How did he perceive loyalty? I just kind of think it's in the same way the gentleman who worked all day mm-hmm. versus yeah. the ones who worked Yeah, the other one. Yeah. yeah, the other parable. So Will's referring to the parable, right, of the hired servants, right, where... The guy that shows up, you know, an hour before before the day's end gets paid as much as the guy that was sweating, uh, you know, blood almost all day long. Hand, yes, Maureen, and then Ken. I have a, a story. Of, um, a friend of mine, a girl I went to grammar school with. We only had five Protestants in our elementary school. She was one of them. <laughs> five Protestants. She was. Uh-huh. She, was a, she was a very nice person. She was great, and uh, went to an Advent Christian church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew she was a, a, a sweet person and I came to know the Lord at 30 and my sister and my mother within like a month mm-hmm. and I ran into Claire when my daughter was going to a day camp at the church that her son was going to haven't seen her in years and I invited her to come to my house I said oh I said come to my house I want you to meet Helen and my mother well you know we were newly saved maybe only a year or two, and we were part of like a revival. I mean, we went, it was like from darkness to all light. It was just so amazing. So we're sitting around the kitchen table, and we're just telling her how it all came to the Lord, and we're rejoicing in the Lord, and so forth and so on. And anyway, she leaves after the conversation, and unbeknownst to me, it was like she was walking under the threshold of our front door. Hmm. And then we got to meet her and her cousins of so later on. And we were talking. She brought you know up. She says, you know, she says, I have been a Christian all my life. She said, and here you people are just, are just so rejoicing and so forth and so on. And she said, I just feel like, like almost she wasn't a Christian or mm-hmm. wasn't wasn't right. And, mm-hmm. and I said, just exactly. Mm-hmm. What the Father says to I, I said to her, Claire, I said, you've enjoyed the Lord mm-hmm. all of these years mm-hmm. that I did not. I was yeah. in the darkness. Yeah. I didn't have the light. Mm-hmm. And I said, and you're going to enjoy Him more and more as we go. Yeah, definitely. And, and so I could understand how she felt, and it made me understand about myself, mm-hmm. too, you know? And it was wonderful to be able to encourage her. She's just not of that outgoing spirit to begin with. Right. But I felt so bad that she left our house like that. It's funny. And there are people like that. Yeah, there are. There are. And they, yeah. And who knows what's going on in her head. And, and what's going on in this young man's mind is far less noble than what was going on in your friend's mind. But I think the point is still very good. That uh, 
you know, she. Yeah, yeah, and she wasn't angry. I mean, your friend wasn't angry that you guys were rejoicing. She was like, wow. I well, I don't know. Maybe she was upset with God. Why didn't you say me maybe? later or whatever? What have I missed? Yeah. Sir Kenny actually had a question. Ken! Go ahead. Are you all set? You sure? You're really sure? You're surely sure? Okay. I can remember walking in, uh, alongside of um, the beaches in uh, New Jersey. It was um, uh, Harvey Cedars. There was a Bible conference, and I was yelling at God. I, had, I was newly saved. I was yelling at God, and I was saying, What were you thinking, God? I've been working with kids for 35 years, mm-hmm. coaching them, and I had you saved me then, I could have had such an impact mm. on these kids. What were you thinking, God? And I was angry. Mm. And it was like Moses had to go into the desert first. Yeah. And 40 yeah, years. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I really had to do. And then when I got to Jamaica, I was able to uh, meet with children and, mm. and young teenagers, and uh, we would read the Bible every day and practice verses and we would explain them and uh, there was a number of young boys who now, were now men who came to faith in Christ. One of them, his name is Damien Thomas. Mm-hmm. He'll be coming here soon. Cool. And you're going to be meeting him. Another one is Cardell Kennedy. Mm-hmm. You've already met him and he'll be here September 7th. Ah, yes. When we, when we question what God is thinking. Yeah. I should have been smacked up my head. You know, lightning should have hit me right in the toe. Yeah, but he loves you. The, the second son seems works based. Like I've very been much. doing all of this. Very much. Yeah, very much. Not yeah, that's the theme we're going to pick up on next week. Entirely legalistic. I and mean, we'll talk about who does he represent in the story, etc. Um, I want to give you a quick update too. I, I update you now and again on this gentleman, Nabil Koreshi, who I've spoken to. He was in the hospital for five weeks, had his stomach removed, and he's home now. Uh, he, he he posted his 40th blog from home yesterday. And uh, so he talks about how you know he'll have to you know reacclimate himself to eating and things like that without a stomach and what all that means. But he also said that they told him his liver is shot full of cancer right now, and they can't get the uh, his enzymes are going crazy. He's, in fact, he's jaundiced, and the doctor told him point blank, if we can't get your enzymes, we can't get this under control, you're going to die. So he's living moment to moment. He's living moment to moment with the very real possibility that they because they can't figure out what's going on with his liver I mean there's cancer in it but I don't know I wouldn't begin to know how to say well gee obviously it's, it's not that simple I guess right so he's uh, and, and, but he said and so if things go a certain way don't ever say after having viewed these things that Nabil was wrong about God I'm completely, completely right about God he said I love God so much with, with all my heart and uh, he said at the end of the day and he quoted Spurgeon something about we lay down our head on the sovereignty of God's pillow or something like that or mm-hmm. the pillow of God's sovereignty so but do keep him in prayer please he's praying for mm-hmm. still praying for healing but he's willing to accept anything so I just think that's a great example it really is so Wally oh Wally I was going to have you pray for us Wally <laughs> Seth will you please pray for us